Mic on. Hello there, this is Joseph. We're now on the second to last episode of the series. This is episode 25, Revelations, Joy and Disappointment. So here we go with this episode. Enjoy. Mic off. What does the future hold? Where can we find certainty in a world of uncertainty? The Book of Revelation provides hopeful answers for today, tomorrow, and forever. Join Mark Finley, author and world-renowned speaker, on a journey into the future with Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us for Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. You know, a lot of people, when they think about the book of Revelation, think about complicated prophecy. They, some people say, you know, I don't want to study Revelation because all it's about is mystic symbols and prophetic images. But actually, the book of Revelation has encouraged the people of God down through the centuries. It is a prophetic book, but it's a very, very practical book. And when you look at the book of Revelation, it gives you joy for today, it gives you hope for tomorrow, it gives you courage for the future. Our topic today looks at joy out of disappointment. As we study, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we pray that we would not only understand its prophetic significance, but we pray today that you would speak to our hearts. We pray today that the living word, Jesus, would speak to us personally, individually, bring to us a sense of hope in despair, in courage in defeat, and bring to us a, spend, a sense of joy in the disappointments of our life. Help us to see that you can turn around any circumstance for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen. amen. The topic for this presentation is Revelation's prediction of joy in disappointment. You know, as you live the Christian life, you often experience trials. There are many people who look at the Christian life and say, it's just health, wealth, and prosperity. But that certainly was not the picture that you get when you read Scripture, and it's not the picture you get when you read the New Testament. It certainly is not the picture you get when you read the book of Revelation. Down through the ages, God's people have been encouraged as they have read Revelation. Think of some of the trials that God's people have faced. They've faced the lion's den. They've faced the stake and been burned at the stake. They have faced persecution and oppression. Yet the book of Revelation has given them great courage. Have you ever noticed that sometimes after your greatest disappointments in life, you have your greatest joys in life. Christians at times go through sickness, yet in that moment of sickness, they find Christ in ways that they would never have found if they hadn't gone through that. They go through periods of financial challenges, yet they find Christ in that in ways they would not have found if they hadn't gone through that. They have gone through periods of financial disaster, and as they have, or periods with their family where there's been conflict. And through all of that, through the tears of life, 
through the trauma of life, they've found Christ in a new way. In Revelation, the 10th chapter, we're going to study in this presentation joy coming out of sorrow, triumph coming out of defeat. We're going to discover how in some of the most painful experiences in life, God works some of the most amazing miracles for the glory of his name and for the triumph of his cause. As we go to Revelation, the 10th chapter, we understand that the book of Revelation talks about a God that brings joy out of disappointment, a God that brings his power at the time when we need it most. We take our Bibles and we turn to Revelation, the 10th chapter one of the most powerful, one of the most magnificent chapters in all the Bible. Now, there are three chapters in the book of Revelation that describe God's people or His true church. Revelation 14 describes the message of the true church. Revelation chapter 12 describes the identifying characteristics of the true church. But Revelation chapter 10 deals with the historic rise of the true church, and it deals with the people of God rising up out of disappointment. Revelation chapter 10's central message is this, God brings joy out of sorrow. Revelation the 10th chapter, verses 1 to 4, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun. Very often we rush by Bible texts, not fully getting their significance, not fully grasping their meaning. So let's look at this passage very carefully. I saw still another mighty angel come down from heaven. When an angel comes down from heaven to bring a message to John, I want to listen, don't you? If God sends his message via an angel, it must be incredibly important. Now, notice what it says. It says he's clothed with a cloud. Can you think of any other time in the Bible where a cloud protected God's people? Can you think of that? When Israel wandered in the wilderness in the desert, there was a cloud over them by day. What does a cloud represent in the Bible? If you have your scriptures, take your Bible and turn to Proverbs, the 16th chapter. Proverbs, the 16th chapter. And here we find a little bit about the significance of a cloud. What does a cloud represent in the Bible? Proverbs 16, verse 15, we get a clue from the cloud that protected Israel from the desert sun. That was obviously God's blessing, obviously God's protection, obviously God's favor. Proverbs 16, verse 15, in the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like a what? Cloud. So when we see this expression, of an angel coming from the presence of God with a cloud. God is bringing his favor to his church. God is bringing his blessing to his church. God is going to manifest all of his goodness about his church. I saw still another angel, a mighty angel coming down from a cold with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. When's the first time God mentioned a rainbow in the Bible? In the book of 
Genesis, that's right. And uh, the rainbow represents God's justice that the world must be destroyed by a flood, but His mercy that He would never do it again. So an angel comes from the presence of God, bringing God's favor to His people. When this angel comes from the presence of God, he's an angel of justice and mercy. On the cross of Calvary, with nails driven through his hands and blood running down his face, Jesus demonstrated justice, that sin must be atoned for, that the broken law could not be left without the satisfaction of divine justice. So on the cross we find justice, but in the cross we also find mercy. The characteristic of God is He's a God of justice and mercy. So love has two sides, the justice side and the mercy side. So also when you look at the final judgment, you see the blessing, the cloud of God upon His people in judgment when the great controversy is settled before good and between good and evil. But you also see the justice and mercy of God. So right from the first phrase here in Revelation 10, we're being pointed to end time, a time when the cloud of blessing would come upon God's church, a time when justice and mercy would be revealed and the great controversy would be settled between good and evil, between Christ and Satan. And it said there was, his face was like the sun, the sun of righteousness, the iridescent glory of God. And then it says, and his feet were like what? Like what, everybody? Pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now notice his feet were like pillars of fire. Where else in the Bible do you read about pillars of fire? When... Israel's wandering in the wilderness, they were covered by the cloud of God's favor, the cloud of God's blessing, the cloud of God's goodness through the day, and they were guided by pillars of fire at night. Pillars of fire indicate guidance, they indicate direction. So an angel comes down, iridescent with the glory of God. And as this angel comes down, he comes down with God's blessing, the cloud of his favor for God's church. He comes down to point God's church to justice and mercy in the final judgment. He comes down to give God's special direction to his church, guided by these pillars of fire. But this angel has a little book open in his hand, and he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cries with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. You know, there's a lot of people that want to know, and they're always trying to figure out things that God has never revealed. You know, the Bible says that the seven thunders are announced, but um, here... The angel says, John, don't write these seven thunders. You know, I give God credit for making most clear what's most important. I am always nervous about those people that say, I have discovered new truth and here's some time prophecy and if everybody else only knew that, I'm nervous about that. 
I think God makes most plain what's most important in the Bible. What do you think? God is very clear in Scripture as He makes most plain His divine truth, as He makes most plain His Word, as He makes most plain the things that are the most significant in Scripture. So when God says, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them, I don't want to get into those, do you? I'm not interested in what God has not revealed. I'm interested in what He has revealed. Now, what was in the angel's hand? What was there? A little what? Book. And the book was closed or open, everybody? The book was open. What other book in the Bible is a companion book to the book of Revelation? What other book? The book of Daniel. Does Daniel, do Daniel and Revelation, do they match and sync? And does one explain the other? Was the book of Daniel ever sealed? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. What's the little book in the angel's hands? It must be a prophetic book, and it must be a book that was at one time sealed. Daniel 12, verse 4, what does it say? But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the what? Book until what time? Until what time? The time of the end. And many shall run to and fro, and knowledge, that his knowledge about the book of Daniel would be what? Increased. Daniel 12, verse 9, and he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are sealed until the time of what? The end. So was there a book of the Bible that was be, to be sealed until end time? Was there? Certainly. And what was that book? Daniel. So an angel comes down from heaven, iridescent with the glory of God. An angel comes down from heaven with the cloud of God's favor and blessing. An angel comes down from heaven with justice and mercy. An angel comes down from heaven to open the little book of Daniel and reveal the portion of Daniel that has been sealed, namely the portion about the end time judgment. Now, when you look at the book of Daniel, was the whole book sealed? Did anybody fail to understand some of the parts of Daniel? What portion of the book of Daniel does the angel would be, say would be, be sealed? Well, was the part about Daniel and the lion's den sealed? No, Christians have read that, believers have read that down through the centuries, and they've understood Daniel and the lion's den. What about the three Hebrews throwing being thrown into the fiery furnace. Was that sealed? Certainly not. So what was sealed? The time portions of the book of Daniel. The angel whom I saw, Revelation chapter 10, 5 and 6, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea, on the land, raised up his hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now look, my friends, if the angel stands, raises his hand to heaven, and swears by a solemn oath. I want to listen, don't you? Here is an angel swearing by a solemn oath. Do angels lie when they swear by a solemn oath? Do angels speak falsehood when they swear by a solemn oath? This angel that represents God himself, who brings a message from God himself, lifts his hand to heaven. And it says, he swears by him who created the things that are in it. 
and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea that are the things that there are in it, that there should be delay, that is the delay in the fulfillment of the time prophecies. The King James Version says there should be time no longer. Now I want you to think about this word delay or time. You don't quite catch it in the English language. The New Testament was written in the Greek language and the word for delay or time is chronos there. Do you know what word we get from chronos? Chronology. And chronology has to do not with a punctiliar point in time, but rather a duration or length of time. So the very word chronos that's used refers us back to the prophecies of book, the book of Daniel, the longest time prophecy in the Bible in Daniel. There would be time no longer. In other words, chronology would run out after the fulfillment of Daniel 8.14, the 2300-year prophecy. We're going to look at that. So after that time, according to the angel who swears, lifting his hand to heaven, the issue with Christ is no longer time. You go back to this prophecy. The time prophecies of the book of Daniel would be sealed until the time of the end. Now, what's the longest time prophecy in the book of Daniel? What prophecy in Daniel takes you down to a time period after which there is no specific time prophecy? Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. This is the longest time prophecy in the Bible. Now, in the, this series on Revelation's ancient discoveries, we have studied this 2,300-day prophecy. In the Bible, one prophetic day equals one literal what? One literal year. So this prophecy would say under 2,300 years, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. That only makes sense because 2,300 days from Daniel's day certainly only would take you for literal days, about six, six and a half years. It doesn't take you down to the time of the end. Now, what about this cleansing of the sanctuary? Let me review what we've studied already. The 2,300 years... In Daniel's day, the Bible says, Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah shall be seven weeks, threescore and two weeks. That decree went forth by Artaxerxes, according to Ezra 7 in 457 B.C. 69 prophetic weeks after that, 483 years, take you down to the cross. Uh, exactly, take you down rather to the baptism of Christ and where Christ here is baptized. Three and a half years later, according to the prophecy, you're taken down to the spring of 31, the cross of Calvary. Three and a half years later, you're taken down to the gospel going to the Gentiles. In fact, Daniel's prophecy said 70 years or 70 weeks of years, 70 weeks, 490 literal years are for the Jews in this prophecy. So part one of the prophecy for the Jews has to do with the first coming of Jesus, his baptism, his crucifixion, 
the gospel going to the Gentiles. The second part of the prophecy has to do with the second coming of Christ and the first 490 years run out in A.D. 34. Then there are 1810 years left in the prophecy taking us down to 1844. This 2300-year prophecy, 2300 prophetic days or literal years, we've studied this carefully in this Revelation's Ancient Discovery series. This is a review of that. If some of you have missed it, go back to the presentation that we have gone over this very carefully. So this cleansing of the sanctuary takes you down to what the Bible calls the time of the end. It takes you down to the last days of earth's history. It takes you down to the year 1844. Now, God deals with great epics in history. When God is talking about history, He's dealing with great epics. So when we look at Revelation chapter 10, what does that say? It's saying Daniel's prophecies would be unfolded. The book of Daniel would be opened. And as the book of Daniel would be opened, the longest time prophecy in Daniel, that 2300-year prophecy that predicted the exact date of the baptism of Christ, the exact date for the crucifixion of Christ, the exact date for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, that this long-time prophecy would run out. It would come to its fulfillment in 1844. God is dealing with these huge epics of history. But notice what it says in Revelation 10, verse 7. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, now this is the last of the trumpets, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now whenever this 2300-year prophecy ran out, sometime after 1844, according to the Bible, the mystery of God would be finished. What's the mystery of God? Take your Bible. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. It's vitally important to understand this expression, the mystery of God. The angel comes down from heaven, iridescent with the glory of God, with an end-time message about a little book, the book of Daniel, that would be open, about Daniel's time prophecies that would be fulfilled after 1844, about a little book that would be open and talk about the mystery of God being finished. You're looking at the book of Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 27. What is the mystery of God? To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of His mystery. Here is the glory of Christ's mystery. What is that? Among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the mystery of Christ that's been kept hidden down through the ages. It's Christ transforming the lives of His people. It's the love of God being manifest in His people. It is a people that are dedicated totally, completely, absolutely to Christ. The mystery of God, the mystery of the incarnation of Christ in the believer, the mystery of the transformed life of the believer, the mystery that in a world of sin and iniquity and wickedness that Christ can triumph over evil in your life, that mystery would be revealed and what would happen? Verse 28, Him we preach, 
warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. What is the mystery of God? It is the cross of Christ changing the lives of men and women. It's the cross of Christ making the lives of men and women new. Whoever you are watching this telecast, whoever you are in this local audience, Christ can do something in your life that's amazing. Christ can enter your life. Christ can transform your life. The mystery of God can be revealed in your life. The mystery of Christ, the mystery of Jesus forgiving your sin, the mystery of Jesus pardoning your sin, the mystery of Jesus taking away that guilt, the mystery of Jesus breaking the chains that bind us, the mystery of Jesus delivering us from habits and attitudes that shackle us, this mystery of Christ. And when Christ enters into your life, when He gives you a new life, when He transforms your life, all you want to do is share His love. All you want to do is share His goodness. All you want to do is share His grace. God will have a group of people at end time that have come to Christ. They have come to the cross of Christ. Jesus has changed their life, and they go out to spread His message, and the mystery of God will be finished. Now, the finishing of the mystery of God is His final powerful proclamation of the gospel to the entire world so that Jesus can come. Now, how would these events develop? How would the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies, how would those, that fulfillment at the end of that 2300-year prophecy in or around 1844, how would the events that surrounded that lead to the mystery of God, lead to men and women being totally, absolutely sold out for Christ and going out to preach the gospel to the world. Notice Revelation 10 verse 9, so I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. What's the little book? The book of Daniel. And he said to me, take it and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So take the little book and eat it. You remember what Jeremiah said? Thy words were found and I did eat them and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So taking the little book of Daniel, here's a prediction. At the end of that 2,300-year period, in the 1840s, God's people, men and women around the world, would begin studying the prophecies of Daniel. The prophecies of Daniel would be open, and as they studied them, their hearts would thrill. New joy would curse through their veins. They would have a hope and a glimmer in this dark world that Jesus is coming and coming soon. But then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it. I absorbed the little book of Daniel. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. What is the clear prediction that a group of people desiring to see Jesus come would study Jesus' word and they would be so thrilled with what they studied, so enthralled with what they studied, so excited about what they studied. They would believe that Jesus was coming and it would be so sweet in their mouth, but they would go through a bitter disappointment. Tears would flow from their eyes. They would feel that their hopes like a bottle thrown against the wall and dashed and cracked in a thousand pieces. 
their hopes would dance away like a shadow. They would go through a bitter, sweet experience. Historically, when the prophecies of Daniel were fulfilled, shortly after 1844, and in and around that date, before and after it, what experience led up to 1844? What experience led up to the climax of that 2300-year prophecy? Did God's people read the book of Daniel? Were there Baptists and Methodists and Congregationalists and Catholics and people of all faiths and creeds that studied the book of Daniel? Did their hearts burn within them? Were they thrilled with what they studied? Did they go through a bitter disappointment? Let's review some of that history. We go to Europe and the continent and we leap across to England. Edward Irving began to study the prophecies of the book of Daniel. He studied the time prophecies of Daniel. He believed that Christ was going to come in the early 1800s and settled on the 1840s. At this time, most of the churches were teaching, in fact, the, most of the theologians were teaching, Bible teachers were teaching, that Christ would come and establish his kingdom on earth, that there would be a thousand-year millennial period of peace. The idea of a soon return of Christ, the idea of Christ coming in power and glory in the clouds of heaven was not something that was typically being taught by the traditional churches. But Edward Irving began studying the prophecies of Daniel and he said, Christ is going to come and Christ is going to come soon. Soon, 300 preachers in the church of England were preaching from their pulpits, the soon return of Christ, that he would come and every eye would see him, that he would come and he would come and not keep silence on 50 verse 3, that he would come in glory, Matthew 16 verse 27. And so England was moved by the preaching of these preachers in the 1840s about the coming of Christ. There was Manuel Lacunza. He happened to be a Catholic priest, a Jesuit. He began studying the Bible. He was amazed at what he studied in South America. And he began to study about the fact that Jesus was coming and he was coming soon. He began to study about the fact that the Bible did not teach, that there was a thousand years of peace on earth. He became so thrilled that he wrote a tract. He would not write it under his name, Manuel Lacunza, because he knew that he could be persecuted, oppressed. So he wrote it under the name of Rabbi Ben-Ezra. And as he wrote it, people began to read it, and all of South America began to be stirred. Christ is coming, and coming soon. Joseph Wolfe became the missionary to the world. Brilliant mind, knew multiple languages, traveled to the Middle East, often walked the deserts, bare feet, little to drink, often attacked by wild beasts, taken captive and kidnapped by barbarian tribes. But he preached and preached and preached on the second coming of Christ, came to America, preached before the American Congress, all over the world. Surprisingly, God is raising up different men, different women. Surprisingly, God is moving by His Holy Spirit in very, very remarkable ways. There is an Advent movement, an Advent awakening. God is preparing to do something amazing. God raises up a farmer 
Lowhampton, New York. His name, William Miller. And God moves upon him. He studies Scripture for 12, 13, 14 years. He had been a deist. What a deist. Deists believe that you wind up the world like a clock and you let it go, that God does not interfere in human activity. But God moves upon this farmer. He begins to study the Bible. He had no hope for salvation. He said, the earth was like brass under my feet. He said, my future was clouded in darkness. But as he studies, he finds Jesus. He finds the Lamb of God that can take away his sin. He finds the Christ that died upon the cross for him. He finds a new strength. He finds a new joy. He finds a new meaning. He has one rule of scriptural study. I will let the Bible explain itself. And he starts with Genesis. And as he's reading something that he doesn't understand, he looks for a text that enables him to explain it. And William Miller comes to the conclusion. He comes to the book of Daniel. And he lets the Bible explain itself. He reads 2,300 days. He goes to Ezekiel 4.6, a prophetic day is a year. He goes to Numbers 14.34, prophetic day is a year. He reads about the beasts in Daniel 7. He comes down to 7.23 and he reads the beast shall be the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom. He reads about waters. He goes over to Revelation 17 verse 15. He says the waters are our peoples. So he begins to use the Bible to interpret itself. Along with Edward Irving, along with Joseph Wolf, along with Manuel Lacunza, Miller, thousands of others have come to the conclusion Christ is coming. So there's this great Advent movement, 1840, 1841 in the 1840s. Around the world, the Word of God is being proclaimed. What are the fruits of this movement? Men and women are on their knees surrendering to God. Men and women are repenting of their sin. Debts are being paid back. Old scores are being settled. Reconciliation is taking place between people. Drunkards are becoming sober. Prostitutes are becoming pure. Thieves are becoming honest. The message of the second coming of Christ is stirring America, stirring Europe, moving the world. They believe Jesus is going to come eventually. They settle on a date, 1844, October 22, 1844. Now you say, but they should have known better. Jesus says there'll be not a day or an hour. You know, there are times that one may misunderstand prophecy, and they did, no question about it. But God did something amazing out of that misunderstanding. You see, faithful Bible students believed that the cleansing of the sanctuary was the cleansing of the earth by fire. So when they read under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, they said, what's the sanctuary? Oh, that's the earth. And it needs to be cleansed by fire when Jesus comes. They misunderstood that. They anticipated that Christ would come at the end of the 2,300 years in 1844. Now, Remember what Daniel's prophecy predicted? That time prophecy would run out in 1844, that the judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary, that judgment would begin then. And remember what Revelation said? It said, take the little book and eat it, and it will be what? Sweet in your mouth, but what? Bitter in your belly. 
when Christ did not come as they expected. They were bitterly, bitterly disappointed. But let me take you to another disappointment. You see, somebody says, well, but Pastor Mark, wait a minute. How could, how could a movement that was so true and have such tremendous power, how could that ever end up so disappointed? Let me take you to another disappointment. This disappointment is not 1844. This disappointment is 31 AD. This disappointment has to do with the disciples. Did Jesus explain to the disciples that he, he was coming to set up a kingdom of grace? Did, were there prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke about the crucifixion of Christ? Were there? Did the disciples understand those? They thought he was coming to give them victory over the Romans. They thought he was coming to triumph over their enemies. When Jesus died on the cross... Were there prophecies both in Daniel and Isaiah and Micah and Psalms throughout the Old Testament that could have and should have revealed to the disciples that Christ was coming to set up the kingdom of grace and not the kingdom of glory? Were, there, were the disciples disappointed when Jesus died on the cross? Were all their hopes dashed when Jesus died on the cross? Luke chapter 24, verse 21, records the sayings of the disciples on Emmaus Road. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They had given everything. Peter and James and John had left their fishermen's nets. Matthew had left his tax collector's booth. And here, when Christ died, they were bitterly disappointed. The last time they had seen Christ's body before the resurrection, they saw his bruised and broken and bloody body as it was laid in the tomb. They were hiding in that upper room, fearful, discouraged, depressed. But out of that disappointment of 31 AD, out of their misunderstanding of prophecy, out of all of that, God was raising up the New Testament Christian church because God brings joy out of sorrow. God brings triumph out of defeat. God brings joy and happiness out of our discouragements in life. Look, Jesus said to them in Acts 1 verse 7, He said to them, It's not for you to know the times and seasons when I'll set up my kingdom that the Father has put in my own authority. After His resurrection, He said to them, I have a task for you. Acts 1 verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. The New Testament Christian church was raised up out of disappointment. The New Testament Christian church was raised up out of a misunderstanding of prophecy. The Bible says, Acts 2, verse 41, then those that gladly received his word were baptized. And about 3,000 souls were added to them. Watch the pattern. Misunderstanding of prophecy by the disciples. Hopes dashed when Christ goes to the cross. Jesus dies, is put in his tomb. Christ is resurrected. He says, you have a mission. They commit to following that mission. He pours out his Holy Spirit upon them. The gospel goes to the then known world. Acts 6 verse 7, the word of God spread. 
the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. Great many of the priests are obedient to the faith. So the gospel goes everywhere. God often brings victory out of our pain. You going through some pain today, some sorrow today, some disappointment today. God brings victory out of our pain. God said to them, Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Go, I have a mission for you. The disciples believed that Christ was going to restore his kingdom. The disciples were bitterly disappointed when Christ was crucified. The disciples were amazed after the resurrection. And the disciples, too, had a mission to fulfill. What about God's last day church? They went through that period of disappointment. Can you imagine what it must have been like October 22, 1844? Like these early disciples, they believed that Christ was going to set up his kingdom. Like these early disciples, they believed that Jesus was going to come. Can you imagine? It's October 22. It's 1844. The leaves are changing in the autumn in New England. The horizon is painted in all the hues of gold and yellow and orange. It's a beautiful fall. But these New Englanders and those who believed around the world that Christ was coming have left their crops, many of them in the fields. They believe Christ is coming. And I can just imagine it's evening of 1844, October 22, and a family gathers around. There's father and there's mother. There's sisters and brothers. And father says, children, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. We, we've studied the prophecies of Daniel 2. They've been fulfilled. We've studied the prophecies of Daniel 7. They've been fulfilled. We've studied the last time prophecy in the Bible. The sanctuary is going to be cleansed. The earth is going to be cleansed with fire. Jesus is going to come. Oh, John, my son, James, my son, have you fully committed your life to Christ? Yes, Father, we have. Alice, little girl, eight years old, have you committed? Yes, I have, Daddy. Yes, I have. Jesus is going to come today. He's coming before midnight. He's going to come at the darkest hour. Oh, Johnny raises his hand. Daddy, Daddy, will we see Grandpa again? I, I, I love Grandpa. Grandpa and I used to take hikes. We used to walk in the forest right out there. Daddy, will I see him? Yes, yes. And, and Daddy, Daddy, what about Aunt, Aunt Jane? Will we see her? Yes, we will. Oh, I can't wait. How soon? How soon? Five more hours, children. Four more hours, children. Three more hours, children. One more hour, children. He's coming. He does not come. Were the prophecies wrong? Mother doesn't sleep all night. What shall we tell the children in the morning? Was the Bible wrong? Were we wrong to believe? But they saw the evidence of the moving of the Spirit of God. And they began to understand these early Adventists, these Methodists, these Baptists, these Pentecostals, these Congregationalists. They began to understand that the earth was not the sanctuary, but that Christ had entered into his final work in the sanctuary of heaven 
to prepare a world for his soon coming, that in the light of the judgment, men and women would kneel and repent of their sins, and Christ in them would be revealed, and his Holy Spirit would be poured out on them and go to the world. You see, the disciples accepted after their disappointment that Christ had a commission to proclaim the gospel to the world. Christ's last-day disciples believed like these early disciples that Christ was going to restore his kingdom. They, Christ's last-day disciples, like these early disciples, were bitterly disappointed when Jesus did not return. Christ's last-day disciples were amazed when they discovered that they were living in the judgment hour and that the message of Christ was to go to the ends of the earth. And Christ's last-day disciples accepted Christ's commission to proclaim the gospel to the world. Seventh-day Adventists, do not look at 1844 as some black spot on denominational history. We see that as one of the hallmarks that this is a divine movement of destiny raised up by God. We do not look at the disappointment of the disciples of the cross as some black mark. We see the cross standing above heaven and earth. We see Christ dying for us. We see the disciples disappointed, but out of that disappointment, our mighty God brought the New Testament Christian church to launch the New Testament Christian dispensation, and we see Jesus doing the exact same thing in the exact same pattern at end time. Out of disappointment, raising up a movement, a movement that would go to the ends of the earth to prepare people for the coming of Christ, God brings joy out of disappointment. God brings victory out of defeat. God brings triumph out of tragedy because that is the kind of God we serve. And today, the message of Christ is being preached to the ends of the earth because the angel said the prophecy is not over with the bitter disappointment. Revelation 10 verse 11, he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Out of the disappointment of Calvary, God raised up the New Testament Christian church, filled it with the Spirit to go to the ends of the earth. Out of the disappointment of 1844, God raised up the Advent movement, not as another denomination, not as another church in the landscape of American churches or this world's churches. God raised up an end-time movement to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and from that small beginning, Seventh-day Adventists today have work in over 216 countries in the world. This gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, verse 14, will be preached to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. God is fulfilling His prophecy today. What's Christ waiting for? He's waiting for His people on their knees to repent before Him, to give their lives fully to Him, to be filled with His Holy Spirit and go to the ends of the earth sharing His love. Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tongue, and people. This prophecy is being fulfilled today. Let me share with you some amazing stories of how this prophecy is being fulfilled. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. God does have an end-time people, a people that are preparing men and women for the coming of Christ 
When Jesus will come, every eye will see Him. A people that are sharing the matchless charms of Christ. A people that are leading men and women back to the law of God and the Bible, Sabbath. A people that believe in the message of Revelation 10 that you must prophesy again. A people that are taking this message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Let me share with you an amazing story that just happened. Adventist World Radio, making an amazing impact, as is all of our telecasts and all of our radio and internet. But recently, Adventist World Radio broadcasts in 80 languages with signals reaching more than two-thirds of the world's population. Recently, Adventist World Radio leadership came to me and they said, Pastor Mark, can we broadcast some of your sermons to the most remotest areas of the world? So we gave them our sermons on Revelation. They began broadcasting my audio sermons way back in the Philippines, in the mountain areas, with no civilization back there but tribes. One of the tribes had a transistor radio. And those tribesmen began listening to that transistor radio. Now, at the same time, we had sent about 25 pastors to preach in different cities in the Philippines. And as they were preaching in the South Philippines, they were going to have a baptism on one Sabbath. About 800, 900 people were going to be baptized. As they were getting ready for the baptism, they noticed these people coming, coming, coming. And they were coming from the mountains. And there were about 20 of them. And they said, who are you? Where'd you come from? We were listening in our language translated to the messages of the book of Revelation. We come from the jungles. We represent 14 villages with thousands of Indians in them. And our chief said to us, you come to be baptized at that Adventist baptism and then come back and teach the village. Get who's baptizing those Adventists to send their missionaries to the village because we've heard this message on the radio. Praise God. In the deepest recesses of the jungle, God's message is going forth. There are tens of thousands of Seventh-day Adventist mission pioneers that are penetrating the remotest areas with the gospel. Not long ago, we were with some of those mission pioneers, two of them, one of our church leaders. And we said to these two mission pioneers, what do you need more than anything else? They said, we don't want to say. What do you need more than anything else? Uh, we don't want to say. Um, please tell us, what do you need? Well, they looked at one another. They said, we have one pair of shoes between us. And we work in villages that are 14 to 20 miles apart. And whoever is walking to the furthest village gets to wear the shoes that day. But look at our feet, Pastor. They're all bloody. Only if we had another pair of shoes. Well, you can bet we gave them the shoes. But that's the dedication. That is the commitment that is taking this message. Or you come with me to the cities of the world. The cities of this world are filled with people longing to know Jesus Christ. And the message is going forth in the great cities of India. The message is going forth in the cities of China. The message is going forth in the cities of the former Soviet Union. God is moving powerfully through radio, through television, through 3ABN. 
through every aspect that we are using. God is moving in Moscow. He is moving in Russia. Hundreds, thousands are coming to Christ. This message that grew up out of disappointment is going to the ends of all the world. I was in Papua New Guinea. A hundred thousand came out to the stadium, and I saw this bedraggled group of people. I said, who are you? How'd you get here? Pastor, we live on an island. We live on an island. And pastor, this is what happened. We heard you're going to be here. We heard you're going to talk about Jesus. We heard you're going to talk about the second coming of Christ. We walked three days across our island. Then we took a boat for one day. Then we came here to the Kokoda Trail and we walked for a week. I said, that's dangerous. There are robbers there. They said, no problem, Pastor. We only got robbed twice. <laughs> they said, we walked and came by truck, by boat for 10 days. Jesus is doing something, my friends. God is leading people from every faith. God is leading people from every creed. God is leading people to his last day church. Amen. Would you like to open your heart right now, wherever you are, as CA comes to sing, and say, Jesus, Jesus, I see that you bring joy out of sorrow. Lord, I want to give my life to you and walk with your last day people. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Raise your head for love's passing by. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. Now your burden's lifted, carried far away. His precious blood has washed away your stain. So sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, and live just like a newborn baby don't be afraid to crawl remember when you walk sometimes you fall but fall on Jesus fall on Jesus fall on Jesus and Sometimes the way is lonely, steep and filled with pain. But if your sky gets dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus on the shoulder of Jesus. Cry to Jesus and live. worship fills your life and when you can contain the joy inside then dance for Jesus like David danced for Jesus dance for Jesus 
One day, we will fly to Jesus. He will come again and we'll be caught up in the sky to meet Him. But until that time, He's given us a task. Until that time, He's given us a mission. Do you want to be part of something bigger than yourself? Something greater than yourself? You're watching this telecast. You're here in this audience. But you long for something bigger, something greater. You know that life is not simply getting up every morning and going to work and coming home and watching television. There's something big and grand and great. Jesus says to you, make your decision. Come to Christ. Be part of a movement, not simply a church or denomination but be part of a movement, a Sabbath-keeping Adventist movement that's going to the ends of the earth. It'll capture your attention. It'll grip your imagination. Use every one of your talents until Jesus comes again. Why not make that decision as we pray? Father in heaven, you've called us to something bigger, something grander, something greater than the mundane lives that we live. We see the vision and just now come to Jesus, in Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for Revelations, Ancient Discoveries. This wraps up this current episode. Stay tuned for the final episode of the series coming up, which is Revelations, A World of Tomorrow. Thank you. This is Joseph saying, may the Lord bless and keep you, and may his face shine upon you and give you peace. Bye-bye.